This is Latin Pulse, a weekly analysis of news and public affairs in Latin America, brought to you through the cooperation of the School of Communications at Webster University, the global university headquartered in St. Louis, Missouri, and Link TV. And now, here's host Rick Rockwell. Bienvenidos and welcome to Latin Pulse. This week we have twin themes, violence and salvation. We'll focus on the homicide rate in El Salvador and we'll discuss the shifting religious landscape in Latin America. But first, Sierra Hancock has our weekly review of news from around Latin America. The House of Representatives in the United States backed President Barack Obama's trade plan this week, but not without some drama first. Approving the trade plan will mean negotiations will move ahead on the Trans-Pacific Partnership, a deal that creates a special trade zone for a dozen countries along the Pacific Rim, including the U.S., Canada, Mexico, Peru, and Chile. The drama came last Friday, with the House voting down the measure in a procedural vote. But those complex House procedures allowed a re-vote this week. Although he engineered the successful vote, Speaker of the House John Boehner says he's as perplexed as anyone about the different outcomes. I would describe most of what's going on the last three weeks as close to bizarre. (laughs) I don't think I've learned anything from it. (laughs) The vote this week was close, 218 to 208. The bill now moves to the Senate, which will have to rework what had already passed to match the House version. The bill would give President Obama special powers to negotiate trade pacts without amendment by Congress. Republican leaders had hoped if they tied this trade authority to provisions on job retraining for displaced workers that the Democrats would vote for the bill. That didn't happen, and when the two measures were separated, the so-called fast-track trade powers squeaked through. The Dominican Republic this week began deporting thousands of undocumented Haitian workers. The move has met with criticism internationally. Some human rights groups consider this and other recent Dominican policies regarding Haitians as racist. Lauren Derby is a professor at UCLA and the co-editor of the Dominican Republic Reader. She says the long history of poor labor relations between the countries started with the Dominican sugar industry and the U.S. And the thing that really irritates me is nobody's talking about the fact that the, the Haitian migrant stream was created by the United States to staff the ranks of the sugar plantations. And so for a long time, the Haitian question has been really tied up intimately from, from a Dominican perspective with the United States. More than 200,000 migrants have flocked to government offices in the past few weeks to start a registration process that will keep them from being forcibly returned to Haiti. However, some groups say at least half a million unauthorized migrants work in the Dominican Republic. Another country grappling with the issue of forced relocation, this time it's Brazil, and the issue of the relocation of indigenous people so the country can construct a controversial dam. This week, federal prosecutors called upon authorities to halt the relocation of more than 2,000 families in the Amazon jungle. The families face eviction from their lands for the construction of the Belo Monchi Dam. When it is finished, the dam will be the third largest in the world and provide electricity to 23 million homes. Prosecutors say the electrical utility has employed people to harass the families to get them to move before the scheduled timetable. Some may think flamingos can function just fine with just one leg because the animals often can be seen at rest using just one to stand, but they need two to walk. 
and balance. So what happens when a flamingo has a leg amputation? Vets at a Brazilian zoo in Sao Paulo pondered that question this week. Their answer? A prosthetic leg made of carbon fiber. The bird is already up and walking, although with a bit of a limp. And yes, sometimes standing at rest using just one leg. For Latin Pulse, I'm Sierra Hancock. Thanks, Sierra. Our shout out this week goes to our listeners in Washington, D.C. D.C. was the home to our second largest group of listeners this past month, second only to Ashburn, Virginia, where we have our most listeners in the D.C. suburbs of Northern Virginia. Thanks so much to them and to all of our listeners. And now to our first theme. The news came this week that this month's homicide rates in El Salvador are climbing, tracking higher than May, a month that saw 635 people murdered, the worst violence in the country since the end of the country's civil war in 1992. Through the first 10 days of June, Salvadoran authorities report an average of 24 homicides a day, a rate that could make El Salvador the most dangerous country in the world. Critics wonder if the administration of President Salvador Sanchez Seren has let street gangs gain the upper hand. The gangs they're fighting are regarded as the toughest in the world. They're called MS-13 or MS-13 and Barrio 18 or the 18th Street Gang. Earlier this month, we heard from Hector Silva, a Salvadoran journalist and author. Silva is a fellow at American University's Center for Latin American and Latino Studies. He's also the author of Infiltrados, Infiltrators, a Chronicle of Corruption in the Salvadoran National Civilian Police. Earlier this month, Silva discussed how police are using extrajudicial killing of gang members and other criminals to fight violence with violence. Here's the second part of our interview, conducted on location during our recent trip to San Juan, Puerto Rico. I'm hearing a lot of reports, unconfirmed yet I have to say that, because they're very new, and I've been in the ground for uh, a while now, that they're also killing squads within the army. And it seems to be that those killing squads are more organized, you know, in, a, so, in a institutional terms. So we're talking about return of the death squads in El Salvador to deal with gangs yes. and gang leaders. Yes, yes. And that's, I think, again, more research has to be conducted uh, to, to, to confirm all this, you know. But journalism is working on that in the ground. Uh, there have been... Uh, a number of reports out uh, about this, complaints uh, saying, listen, this is, you know, this is a next level. This is not, we're not talking anymore just about Barrio 18 killing MS-13 and, and MS-13 killing Barrio 18, or we're not even just talking about the sophistication of that intra-gang fight. You know, because the, the Barrio de Search is split and, you know, they had two factions, one more violent. It's, it's, we're, we're way beyond that. Because now you have to put in the element of, of a state violence, you know. Because, and I think it's because, you know, ranks don't see, you know, coherent expression. And then again, and this brings me to another very important issue, which is the issue that my book uh, talks about is the illness of these institutions, you know, police, army, these are law enforcement bodies that were created uh, and nurtured during a civil war and haven't changed culture, I mean, 
I'm, I'm exaggerating a bit. But the evolution has been very slow. It's be it very slow now. And so th these institutions have changed a bit, uh, but not fast enough. And now they're confronting probably their the worst insecurity, uh, public citizen insecurity situation that the sovereign states has confronted uh, since the war uh, ended. You know, yes, I'm just looking at the figures. You know, having 33 homicides in one day, we hadn't seen that since the 80s. You know, so, I mean, addressing the problem. I, I, I read uh, in a report, in a, in a press report, a a mid-level police commander saying, listen, it's like, I mean, there's two types of illnesses here. We, this is a cancer. He was referring to gangs. Uh, in order to address cancer, you cannot give the patient a couple of Tylenols. You need to go in and extirpate the tumor. You know? So this is the philosophy, right? And this is scary. You know, this is scary, and, and... But if we carry that analogy forward, sometimes the cure to cancer seems worse to the patient than the course. actual disease. Of course, And at the end of the day, that's the problem. And following the analogy, and the, at the end of the day, the patient very well can very well die in the midst of, of an operation, of, a, of surgery. And, and if, I mean... And or chemotherapy is what I'm thinking about here. Yes. So some people won't take chemotherapy because yeah. of this. And so this is what's happening to El Salvador. Yeah, now. I think the analogy, as scary as it is, coming from an officer that, you know, uh, uh, favors Iron Fist, it's a good analogy because of this. But this is, this is interesting to me, that here we have maybe the most leftist government that El Salvador has had in history, and they're going back to the solutions of the iron fist policies that the right wing would use. And that's because of politics. That's because we have a nation, na national problem. This is our very most urgent problem, you know, and has to do with a lot of causes, you know, you've, I'm sure you've heard a lot of, you know, multicultural multi phenomena, what, you know, and, and that's true, you know, poverty, inequity, uh, ill-prepared institutions, all of that. The southern state never addressed that. It didn't address that when it uh, followed the peace accord. You know, we had a lot of good steps after the peace accord, but what we didn't do is address the problem of our security institutions. And we use, we, I mean the state, or politicians, the state of El Salvador, use the gang phenomenon to talk about everything, to avoid talking about other problems. But, but it's interesting, and the, the truce, the gang truce, which is now gone, well, in a way, under the Funes administration, Mauricio Funes was president, they never admitted that they had helped really try to put this together, to walk away from the fact that they had helped broker this, that the Catholic Church was involved in doing this. You know what they and, did? And, and then Sanchez Serén comes in and, and campaigned on the fact that I'm probably not going to deal with the truce. So here he is set up at the beginning. I don't want to talk to the gangs. The truce is that's not politics. the way. That's electoral politics. You know, that's the electoral advisor saying, you don't want to go there because you're going to lose. You know, and now is you want to go Iron Fist because regardless of how good you're doing in education, because 
it needs to be said that this leftist government is doing good things in other areas like you know education, uh, health. He's, this government is doing a lot of efforts to confront the other actor here who's equally to blame, the private sector. You know, a private sector that's part of the state also, doesn't pay taxes, you know, managed to pay for private security and couldn't care less about what, hap what was happening in barrios with gangs and people dying. But they're trying to address that. But, 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 but in, terms of, sorry, in terms of security, you know, they don't know what to do. And they know that the very, very item that can make them, the left, lose the, pro the, the next election is that. So, so this, is the, this is the question that I have, because educate me and in, in our audience, too, about you can't run for re-election in El Salvador as president. So it really is about who comes next for the party yeah. to take over. Yeah. They're already looking forward to that election and, and watching that presidential spot. Yeah. They've had that position now two times in a row. Of course, and keep in mind, yeah, that's exactly how it works, and keep in mind that the right, the political right, has been out of power now for two presidential periods, and they, you know, as any opposition, you know, the Republican Party in the United States really badly wants to take back the executive branch. Well, and ARENA is very close to the Republican Party. Yes, and so what they're, 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 they're let, let's say the game plan here, their script is to hit the government in their Achilles heel, and that's violence. Never mind, they, they caused the problem in the first place with their policies. Never mind, but, that, but that's no excuse, and they're right in that. I mean, they've been out of power for six years, for six years now, you know. So the FMLN needs to take responsibility, but what I'm trying to say is that the right, the opposition, will always uh, not because they're interested in the well-being of the sovereign population and really interested in the state of security affairs because they want to heat the government. So there's a trap here, uh, a self-fulfilled pro prophecy, right? You know, it's like there's no other way to address this but with Iron Fist. And going back to the, that officer analogy, yes, you need a cure for cancer, but that's expensive. That doesn't happen overnight, you know. And I mean a cure not for the patient, a cure for the illness, a cure for cancer, you know. You need for the gang year, illness. Years and years of research, investment. You need state policy, you know. And what we're seeing with the FMLN is that electoral politics is winning this war, you know. So that's what's what's. But I I, I don't want to be. Uh, I think there's some signs of hope here. And one is that because of this violence, and in part because of this violence, Central America is in the geopolitical table of the region again. You know, and factual, you know, powers as the U.S. are looking, you know, looking back. You know, and you've heard again, Secretary of State Kerry, President Obama. Uh, people in Congress, senators, saying, well, again, this violence problem, problem, violence problem down there could become a national security problem for us, so let's address it. We've heard that before, right? And, and, and then again, the U.S. is not going to solve our problems. But I, what I'm seeing now is the creation of 
an international, I'm not going to say a Washington awareness, an international awareness that something needs to be done and that has brought the region some, some types of solutions that in some points are working. And I'm referring here to the CSIG model in Guatemala. You know, some models of accompanying institutional building in the region that can bring, you know, at least some relief for impunity, uh, a different approach for, you know, attorney general's offices, criminal prosecution abilities, and all that. You know? So we're seeing that. We're not seeing that in El Salvador. Mm -hmm. If you take Honduras, we haven't talked about Honduras because, yeah, you said before, you said earlier, some say that El Salvador is going to be the most violent place in comparison with Honduras. It might be. The problem is that we don't really know what's happening in Honduras. Because Honduras, since the coup, is not giving us really reliable figures of crime. You know, so I heard the president of Honduras in Washington a month ago saying we have a sustained trend of reduction uh, in homicides I, and extortions. I went back to another, other Honduran counterparts, you know, the National University, Observatorio de Violencia. Uh, mm -hmm. They laugh at him in the face. Is he saying that? Is he? Well, it's not true. You know, and one of the, of the most respected uh, crime observatories in the country, which is one that, you know, it's at, uh, part of a, uh, a program within the National University. If you look at the figures, they're up until 2012, you know, the coup and, and three years after the coup. You don't see any, any trend of, 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 of homicides going down, so we don't know what's happening there. But now, you, what you hear and see in Honduras is at least the government acknowledging that it might be time to change some stuff. Then it's all the argument that whether this Honduran government is going to change a little bit, not to change, you know, uh, anything, but there's awareness. That's my, that's my point. There is awareness. Thank you so much. Hector Silva, a journalist and research fellow at American University Center for Latin American and Latino Studies the author of Infiltrados, Infiltrators, a Chronicle of Corruption in the Salvadoran National Civilian Police. Our guest today on Latin Pulse, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Democracy is synonymous with independence. Independence is synonymous with emancipation. Emancipation is synonymous with sovereignty. Sovereignty is synonymous with superiority. Superiority is synonymous with arrogance. Arrogance is synonymous with domination, and domination is synonymous with dictatorship. Dictatorship always finds its way. Amnesty International. Learn. Indignate. Act. Welcome back to Latin Pulse. Late last year, the Pew Research Center released the most comprehensive polling on religion in Latin America. The poll included interviews with 30,000 people in 18 countries in the region, and it revealed a shift away from Roman Catholicism. We asked Andrew Chestnut to discuss the research with us. Chestnut is a professor at Virginia Commonwealth University. He's the author of Competitive Spirits, Latin America's New Religious Economy, among other books. Here's the first part of our interview, again conducted on location 
during the program's recent trip to San Juan, Puerto Rico. The most salient finding is long-term Catholic decline. Uh, as late as 1970, Latin America was still 90% Catholic. Now, in 2015, Latin America is only 69% Catholic. Um, a lot of my scholars, a lot of my uh, fellow scholars in the field of religious studies of Latin America, when I was just getting into the field about 20 years ago, um, insisted that evangelical Protestant growth in Latin America didn't necessarily come at the expense of the Catholic Church. Well, the new Pew, Pew survey confirms the fact that this is happening, that Protestant gains in Latin America largely come at the expense of the Catholic Church because the great majority of those who have become Protestant are former Catholics, were baptized in the Catholic Church. And so, you know, what I've suspected kind of on a, on a regional basis in Latin America was confirmed by this new Pew survey. The other very larger kind of macro issue we see here is the Pentecostalization of Christianity in Latin America. What I mean by that is that this specific branch of charismatic Protestantism known as Pentecostalism, which is born here in the United States, 1905-1906, has become grown so much in Latin America since the 1970s that it's now really become the hegemonic form of Christianity both among Protestants and among Catholics. So today, some two-thirds of all Protestants in Latin America are specifically Pentecostal, two-thirds. Jumping over across to the Catholic camp, 40% of Catholics say that they're charismatic. This figure jumps up to 60% plus in countries like Brazil and Guatemala. Another big takeaway is the pluralization of the Latin American religious landscape. Um, beyond the growth of charismatic Christianity, you have a rising number of the religiously unaffiliated. I, if I remember correctly, I think 8% of Latin Americans now have no religious affiliation whatsoever. Agnostics. Exactly. It's, a, it's kind of a catch-all group. Some are agnostics, some are atheists, but most actually still believe in God but do not, do not go to any church, any particular church whatsoever. Um, in the United States, the new Pew, Pew Survey of Religion in the United States now shows that this figure of the so-called nuns, the unaffiliated, um, is now 21% of the American population. And in some countries in Latin America, of course, there's great regional variation. Uruguay is about one-third of the religiously unaffiliated even higher for Cuba, of course, after five decades of communism as well. Uh, also, um, Latin America, uh, U.S. Latinos, 18% of Latinos in the United States now have no religious affiliation. And so there's this, this growing pluralization in which one of the increasingly important options is to have no religious affiliation whatsoever. I guess in, in listening to some of the things you said earlier, you spoke about the influence of African diaspora religions. Um, and so I, I wondered what you found in that particular area, and, and did that also include Santeria? 
the numbers of, of people who say that they're practitioners of African diaspora religion, the four main ones being Cuban Santeria, Haitian Voodoo, and in Brazil we have two major ones, Candomblé and Umbanda, their numbers are still pretty small, um, uh, not more than one or two percent of the population, but the numbers too uh, are hard to get at sometimes because there's been a history of discrimination and persecution since these were the religions brought over by the mostly West African slaves and largely practiced under the cover of darkness, camouflage, syncretism with the Catholic saints. And so historically in countries like Brazil, which actually ask about religion in their 10-year um, surveys, um, historically people who might predominantly practice candomblé, for example, are going to tell the census takers that they're Catholics. And so um, other, other scholars of religion in Brazil, for, for example, estimate that at least a third of Brazilians at some time have gone to a candomblé or umbanda house of worship. Um, so by all accounts, these religions now seem to be thriving and prospering, specifically in Brazil and the Caribbean where they're headquartered. But the numbers are still very small. Let, let's go back, and I, I try to be a big, big picture academic. Um, again, this is our most Christian region on earth. 89% of Latin Americans adhering to either Protestantism or Catholicism. So they're there, they're doing well, they're no longer persecuted and discriminated to the extent that they used to be, although some of the neo-Pentecostal churches in Brazil go after them because they see them basically as, as satanic. Um, but, but I would say that, you know, given their long history of persecution, they're, they're doing well. Well, we've done some of our programs on Santeria in the past, the, the experts on that area have tended to, to say that this is one of the world's fastest growing religions or fastest growing sects. You're not exactly seeing that though in your study. Is it that also because people are, are maybe reluctant to admit that they are adherents to Centuria and to African diaspora religions? Yeah, that might be true. I did, I did see a recent survey that said that 12% of Cubans say that they are members of Santeria. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't think we have those numbers to be able to say that. And of course, Santeria is mostly practiced here in Puerto Rico, Cuba, and the United States. I mean, you know, there's some vestige of this, vestiges of it in places like Mexico, but uh, I'm actually going to counter that and say that probably the fastest growing new religious movement in, in Latin America is, is the cult of Santa Muerte. Although unfortunately I can't back that up with numbers because Pew hasn't gotten on board with me yet to have that kind of macro survey that we need of, the, of, of numbers. But yeah, I think Santeria is doing well, but, but I, I don't know if we're in any position to, to quantify that either. So um, what else about the survey do you think is important for people to consider or to know? We can now say that Central America as a region is no longer a Catholic majority region. Honduras, specifically as a nation, no longer has a Catholic majority. Only 46% of Hondurans are Catholic today. El Salvador, Guatemala, and Nicaragua are now only 50% Catholic. 
Um, the two most Catholic nations in Latin America in terms of numbers are Paraguay. Paraguay is 89% Catholic and Mexico is number two, 82% Catholic. If we break it down kind of by sub-regions in Latin America, the two least Catholic regions today of Latin America are Central America and the Caribbean. And the most Catholic are the Andean nations of, of uh, South America and Mexico. Thank you so much. Andrew Chestnut of Virginia Commonwealth University. Join us on Latin Pulse today in San Juan. Thank you. Thanks for having me back, Rick. Great questions. We'll be hearing more from that interview with Andrew Chestnut later this summer. Thanks for joining us for this edition of Latin Pulse. If you'd like to send us your suggestions or comments, you may leave us a message online via SoundCloud, or you may write us via email. You can find us at latinpulse at gmx.com. That's latinpulse, all one word, at gmx.com. If you're looking for earlier editions of Latin Pulse, we're available in various locations on the web, including iTunes, Facebook, and Flipboard. You can also find us in the Brazilian online game, Mini Mundos. To see the Latin Pulse archives of video programs on Latin America, you can check out Link TV's website, www.linktv, all one word, dot org, and then slash Latin Pulse, also all one word. That's www.linktv.org slash Latin Pulse. Thanks for joining us this week on Latin Pulse for our entire team, production assistant Sierra Hancock and producer Jim Singer. I'm Rick Rockwell. Escucha nosotros vez. Gracias por su tiempo. Latin Pulse is produced at the School of Communications at Webster University, the global university, headquartered in St. Louis, Missouri, with music copyright support through Webster University and Link TV. This program is copyright 2015 Las Rocas Productions. <laughs>